Let's begin reading in uh, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I have come that you may have life, and that you may, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. I told you it was rich. If you would just meditate on this portion of Scripture... It is uh, full of the gospel. It is so full of the gospel. Well, I want to, I want to work my way through this passage. And uh, first off, I want to consider the context of the text. Uh, I, I think you're familiar with that concept, is that if there's a text somewhere, then we try to find its parameters. We try to find... Um, the why, the why it is there, and I think that's largely the context around this, uh, this reading, the text. Um, we have our text, but there's a context that it was given in. And uh, this context, obviously, is the context of chapter 9. Um, it comes right on the heels of chapter 9. Interesting how that there's no real introduction. There's no break here in chapter, from chapter 9 to chapter 10. Jesus simply says he was in a conversation with the Pharisees uh, beginning in verse 39, 40 and 41 of chapter 9. And then it just goes comp- straight on into verse 1 of chapter 10 where he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, verily, verily, I say to you, Vorlich, vorlich isogiai. Um, that that is a very familiar saying. Vorlich, vorlich. Truly, truly, I say to you. It is it is a it is an emphatic. Um, listen, listen up. Most assuredly, verily, verily, and he did it again in verse seven. Most assuredly. So we, it seems like we have the same people on the same day, very likely the same conversation. Uh, 
You see, it's, it, uh, it is a continuation from chapter 9. And in verse 40, we see that the Jesus listeners and even his questioners, questioners, we might say, or his, those who were antagonistic to him, were the Pharisees. They're identified as those who asked him, when he said in verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Those who think they see might actually uh, know, not comprehend. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said, If you were blind, if you would understand your blindness, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, we have no need for your sight, Jesus. Therefore, your sin remains. So then he begins here in this passage. So these people were considered the Jewish leaders, they were the spiritual leaders of the Jews. Uh, or at least it was, they had assumed that place, I believe. Um, they were those who could see. <laughs> in chapter 8, they gloried in being Abraham's descendants. We are Abraham's descendants. Chapter 9, they said, we are Moses' disciples. They gloried in that. Um, and we see that these people, these Pharisees, they had some degree of authority in the Jewish religion. In chapter 9, it's very clear that they were able to throw the man out of the synagogue, of the assembly of the Jews. They were able to throw him out. Uh, They had already concluded back before they threw him out that if anyone would confess that Jesus is the Christ, that we would do this to him. We would throw him out of the synagogue. And so they did that To this man born blind, they threw him out of the synagogue. They had some degree of authority, at least, in the Jewish affairs, in the Jewish religious affairs. Um, We see uh, the Pharisees, we see their attitude in regards to their position in chapter 9 and verse 34. Notice what they said. They answered and said to him, after this man had kind of gave him a, you know, a plowman's theology, where he understood some things that they didn't, and he gave it to them. And they said, you were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. So that was the attitude of an elitist, someone who is up here, and you are this nobody down here, and you're teaching us? Really? You see that the attitude that they had there. Disdain for the common man, we could say. In Matthew 23, in verse 2, uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples and, and the multitude in Matthew 23, verse 1. And he says that the scribes and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. And I think he may well be implying or saying that they have assumed that place of prominence in sitting in judgment over the law and its application. Definitely they had a lot to say about that. They assumed that place of authority. But in verse 6 here in our text, it tells us that Jesus used this illustration, this illustration of the sheepfold, the shepherd, the sheep, but they did not understand. His listeners did not catch what he was telling them, which is an illustration of the blindness of the latter part of chapter 9. He gave them this illustration. They did not understand because they were blind. They were blind to the truth. They did not receive a love of the truth. Um, As 2 Thessalonians speaks about in chapter 2 that we read this morning earlier. They did not receive a love for the truth So this illustration here, it says it clearly. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. 
So we could say that this illustration, we may, uh, I think MacArthur calls it a figure of speech, that it's a way of bringing a truth, revealing a truth to them. It is a way of speaking that is a word picture. And it is a common one throughout Scripture. We have it, the, the Bible is full of these, of these pictures. You, you can read in Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 11, especially Ezekiel 34 where God is indicting the, false, the, the leaders of, of Israel of not caring for the people. He said, you, you are killing my people. You're, you're, dist- you're extorting them. You are using them for your gain. And he, he strongly indicts them in Ezekiel 34. And he refers to them as shepherds over the flock. And how that the shepherds are living off of the flock. And they're growing fat from the proceeds of the flock. And they don't care for the flock. And of course we have Psalm 23. Where the Lord is my shepherd. It's a glorious uh, psalm that we're so very familiar with. And we have uh, psalms like 79, Psalm 79. I'll just read uh, Psalm 79 in verse, I think it is in verse 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll just briefly point this one out. Psalm 79, 13 refers to... um, It says this way, So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. You have Psalm 95 in verse 7. This language is used again where he says, For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. It's it's all through the Old Testament that this this is an illustration that is rich with meaning for these people, for the, for the Jewish people. Very rich. Think about it. Their forefathers, many, many of them, the, the prominent leaders in the Old Testament, they were shepherds. You have Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Caring for uh, the flocks of his father-in-law. You have King David, a shepherd. So it's a very, very, uh, very prominent throughout uh, the forefathers of the Jewish people that this was an illustration that was ripe with uh, with meaning, but it was also it it was home to them. It was who they were, and it was not only historically something that was. Uh, scripturally, in, in the history of Scripture, that it was um, pertinent to them. But it was in their day and in their place. You know, even when Jesus was born, the shepherds were out watching their flocks by night. Um, but uh, this illustration from verse 10, I mean from verse 1 through verse 5, is an illustration. I mean, it... Um, it's, it's, you could almost just read it as uh, an account of how people took care of their sheep. And, uh, in verse 7 then, Jesus begins to make the application. And we can draw much out of verses 1 through 5 about what he is teaching about his shepherding. And so the title this morning would be just simply The Good Shepherd. Um, so, verse 1, he speaks about the sheepfold. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door is a thief and a robber. This sheepfold was a common feature, you know, in, in their day. It was a common feature probably in every village. Uh, it was wherever there, there were shepherds, there had to be a sheepfold. Uh, it was a safe place to shelter the sheep for the night. And I would think that, that multiple shepherds probably housed their flocks in the same sheepfold. Like if there was one village 
there might have been five or six shepherds out of one village, and maybe they all had a communal uh, sheepfold where the sheep entered in. And this, the reason I point this out is that even Jesus is referring to multiple folds in this passage. But he, um, and, and, and it, I mean, he's referring to multiple folds, but he's also referring to his own sheep. Like as if there may be others, and we know that there are, there will be others who are not his sheep, who may be simply in that same fold. And so uh, the, the picture is of a, maybe of a, a structure with one opening that could be guarded by the doorkeeper. It was a, a secure place. Literally, if you wanted to get to it outside of go, going in the door, you had to climb over the wall. You had to make exceptional effort to enter into the sheepfold with it being guarded at the door. One opening guarded by the doorkeeper, and as I mentioned, very possibly multiple flocks in there. And the picture is here, as we look at this verses 1 through 5, that if someone had authority to deal with the sheep legit. In a legitimate way, if they, if they had authority, then they came to the door. You see, they, they, um, they came to the door, and if, if he was a legit owner of the sheep and had actual business with the sheep, the doorkeeper would open the door, would open the gate. But if you climbed in some other way, that was indicative that you had foul motives, that you had ill intentions for the sheep in there. And that's very logical. It's, we know that if someone is sneaking around the back door, then we have reason to be suspicious. But if they knock on the front door, they probably have a reason to be there. And so that's what Jesus is teaching here, that anyone who climbs in another way, who enters the fold another way, is illegitimate and is a thief and a robber. He identifies them in verse uh, 1 as a thief and a robber. And a thief is someone who simply takes what is not theirs. Robbers now are those who do so by violence. They add a degree to that of being thieves. They are literally, a thief oftentimes is, is, um, is subtle in his attempts to steal what, that is, what is not his. But a robber is out in full force to take with violence what is not his. So the shepherd comes to the door of the sheepfold. The doorkeeper opens to him. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls them out, as he says here. The sheep hear his voice in verse 3, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You know, this is a picture of a very personal relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. He knows them. He, his sheep know him. He calls them, and they come out, and he leads them out. He calls his own sheep by name. That is why I'm thinking that if multiple shepherds were coming to the door of the, uh, of the sheepfold, and... They would call their sheep out, and they, those sheep that were his, they would, they would separate themselves naturally by the power of his voice, by the, by, the, by the hearing of his voice. They would come out. And I can go out even in my pasture, and I have this specific call that I give that brings the sheep up. Now, the cows don't come with them, but the, the sheep will come. And, uh, and this is the, the idea here is that he, the shepherd comes to the door and the sheep hear his voice and they respond to him and come out and follow him. He calls them by name. He calls his, notice, his own sheep by name and he leads them out. In verse 3, he calls them his own sheep. And in verse 4, he does it again. He brings his own sheep out. Notice, two times he speaks about his own sheep. 
He is the owner of them. And if we go further back in, in, uh, in, this, um, in the application of these truths, we see that the hired man does not own the sheep. He's a hireling. And because he does not own the sheep, he has little care for them. All his, he, he's only monetarily uh, interested in them because he, he has, I mean, he's hired. And he's given a wage to simply watch the sheep. But this one here, he's saying the shepherd comes to the door and the sheep that he owns come to him. He re- they respond to him. He leads them out. He goes before them. You know, it's really hard to drive sheep. I don't know if you have any experience with sheep. But it's really tough to drive sheep. It is far better to develop a bit of a relationship with sheep and draw them, lead them. Uh, sometimes you have to entice them with a bucket of feed. But if they see you as their provider, they will follow you. They will just instinctively follow you. If, they, uh, if, if that has been established that you are the, their provider, then they will follow you. And it's hard to drive them. So frustrating to drive sheep. So they follow because the shepherd goes before them and he leads them and they follow him because he always wears the same hat? No. There's an integral part of who he is, is his voice. You know, you, you can't copy that. Do you know that? There, there's no way that, you know, they, they don't follow him by sight. They follow him by hearing. By hearing his voice. And there's a lot of application right there. Is if, if you're, if, if you're going to follow someone by sight then you are very apt going to be deceived. But if you are in tune with the voice of the Word of God, you will follow by hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. These sheep hear the voice of their master And because he has a relationship with them and has provided for them and is providing for them, they will follow him, for they know his voice. He calls them by name. Verse 5 is very strong, is a very strong word. It says here, just very clearly. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger. Now there's a lot of comfort to be had in that statement. They will not follow a stranger. If they are the sheep of the master, they will not follow a stranger. But will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Well, this is the illustration that Christ gave to them. What does it mean? What does it mean? How is it meant to be understood? And then verse 7, he says again, Verily, verily, or most assuredly, I say to you, and then he says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. I am the entrance into I am the gateway of the sheep. And I almost changed that to I am the I am the gateway for the sheep. That's not what the Bible says. It says I am the door of the sheep. It doesn't say I am the door for the sheep. Because there would not be any sheep you see if he was not the door. You see. The sheep exist because There's a door. He is the door of the sheep. It is because of Him making it possible, you see, for us to enter in at all, is how come that we're sheep, you see. So, He is the door. I am the door. And we think immediately, maybe, of John 14 in verse 6, where it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
that He is the way. There is none who can come to the Father but by Me. I am the door. I am the entrance into. To be a sheep of the fold of God, you must deal with Me, says Christ. You must enter in through Me. Now, I'm not alone in my understanding that the sheepfold here in verse 1 represents the Jewish nation. I do certainly believe that that is the intent that, and if if you remember two weeks ago on the message, the latter part of John 9, where I had a a prop of the box, and I, I spoke about how there were a number of people in the box, and that the box represented Judaism in AD 33. And there were like four parties in that box. It was the blind man was in it, the the, the parents were in it, the Jewish leaders were in it. And, And how that Christ did not fit into the box of Judaism. Now here in, in chapter 10, we have we have the sheepfold of the Jewish nation. Christ is coming to this sheepfold. Christ is, is opening the sheepfold. He is calling His sheep out, you see. But, so that was the, the illustration I gave last uh, two weeks ago about, about the box. And today, this same box would be this sheepfold. You see, I think sometimes, and, and this, this was definitely something that, uh, as I was, I, I listened to John MacArthur on a message from John 10, and I read various commentaries on this passage, and the fact that we are all sheep of some sort or other, we are all followers of something. We're not an island on ourselves. We are either following this over here or we're following this or we're in the sheepfold of God. We are not autonomous. And so the idea is that Christ must come and He must call His sheep out from wherever they are found, wherever they are following, whatever they are currently um, involved with whether it's Judaism, whether it's, it's the world, whether it's Gentiles. But Jesus came to the Jewish nation and called His own sheep out from this fold. And think about it. This is the blind man of chapter 9. This is the blind man of chapter 9. He called him out. He came to him. The blind man didn't come to him. Jesus came to the blind man, opened his eyes. And then later, in verse 35 of chapter 9, when Jesus had heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he had pursued him the second time, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He calls him to faith, you see. In verse, yes, in verse 35 of chapter 9. He calls him by name, we could say, like he did Philip in uh, John one forty three, where he says, follow me. It says in the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. How many others did he say here? Follow me. I don't know that, you know, his, um, Andrew and Simon Peter's brother, they're in uh, verse 4, when he found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. But it is clear that Jesus is calling his own sheep out of it. And this is, this, by the way, is a picture of our salvation where the Lord calls us to himself calls us out of the sheepfold, whatever fold we are in. 
He comes to his own and he calls them out. Verse 8, he says here, All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, this is, in this illustration, this is the scribes and Pharisees. These are those who, who said, you must come through us. You must, you must come through our, um, you must come through our approval. You must meet our approval. You must enter in to the sheepfold through us. That is the scribes and Pharisees. They are, according to Christ's own words, they are thieves and robbers. They do not have the well-being of the sheep in mind. And we could read, you can, I would recommend you read Ezekiel 34. Listen. Doesn't John 9 bear this out? Why did they cast this man out? Well, we'll get to that here in a minute. The thief... In verse 10, if you go to our text in verse 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Think about that. What the thief, he wants to come and he wants to take what is not his. He wants to steal that which is not his. And whatever he can't steal, he wants to kill. Because he doesn't want... He doesn't want somebody that is not submitted to him. He comes to steal, to take what is not his. He comes to kill what he cannot steal. The thief does not come except to profit himself. You know, it's it's a little bit like if he can't have it, no one else may have it either. And that is what we see in, in John 9 with this guy. He says, if you're not going to follow us, we're going to cast you out. We're going to destroy you. Because that had major implications to be cast out of the synagogue. Maybe even his, his well-being as far as his, his ability to provide and to work, which even though this man had been born blind, but this man had a cross to bear to be cast out of the synagogue. So the thief comes not but to kill and to steal and to destroy. If he can't have if he can't have it, then they will seek to destroy it. Their agenda leads to destruction. Where he says, I uh, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so if you don't give allegiance to us then we will destroy you. This was how they related to Jesus, was it not? This is exactly how they related to Jesus. In 851, John 851, they took up stones. And in John 10 and verse 31, they did it again. They took up stones again. And they ultimately, these, um, these thieves and robbers ultimately did kill the good shepherd. They did do it. Turn, turn with me briefly to Matthew 23. As Christ teaches the multitudes and his disciples about these very people and how that these thieves and robbers, how he identifies them. Matthew 23, let's read 13 through 15. And just, just remember that these are the religious leaders of the day where he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, This is Matthew 23 and verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. So right there you have. They literally, how that they operate is they're shutting the door down. They're, They're endeavoring to shut the fold. You see, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. Doesn't that sound like Ezekiel 34? Where the, they are living off the downtrodden. 
You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, he is not one to the kingdom of God. He is twofold the child of hell than he was before. You make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Blind guides, he calls them. Amazing. Amazing. But this is what Christ is dealing with here. And this is the illustration. And they did not understand that he was speaking to them. That the thief that he was identifying was that one which would come in and have his own agenda. He would come in another way. He would climb over another way. But in contrast, we have the beautiful picture that Jesus said, if you enter in by me, if you enter in by me, you will be saved. You will be saved and go in, out, go in and out and find pasture. Now, verse 9 is a beautiful picture. If you enter in, you will be sheltered. You will find security. You will be saved from the wrath to come. You will be delivered from your sin. You will be, you will be in a place of security and safety. And you will go in. And you won't only go in, but you will also go in and out. Now, I was just contemplating that. This going in and out is a picture of just the glorious liberty of the children of God. In and out. You're going in and out because you are now free. You have this glorious liberty to be loose from the confines of sin and bondage. To be even, even to be loosed, if you would, from the narrow confines of a man-made religion. The confines of Judaism. All the traditions that the scribes and Pharisees had added to the law. That you could only go a certain distance on Saturday. You could not pack too much of a lunch. You, you, all these things, you couldn't, you couldn't go anywhere. They were all narrow confines. Here, Jesus says, you will go in and out and you will find provision. Amen. Amen. To be free from the fear of death. Think about that. The fear of death is the reason that dead religion has strength. If you were not afraid to die, you wouldn't have to abide by anybody's rules. Nobody has a handle on you. See, once you are no longer afraid to die, you are truly free. It is then when you are ready to live. Once you have settled the issue about being free to die, now you can live. What does he say in Hebrews 2? He loosed us who were all our lifetime subject to bondage. What was the form of that bondage? The bondage was simply that we were afraid to die. And that fear, that misplaced fear, instead of pointing at that fear should be directed toward God, we should be concerned about what God thinks. They had a fear after God, but not according to knowledge. This describes these scribes and Pharisees. They were not just out here doing their own, doing, doing just anything. You see, they did have a degree of fearing God. But they also feared death. And, and that fear of death gives strength to dead religion. And when you... Get this issue settled of going in and out and finding pasture. It's a glorious liberty. Glorious liberty. To go in and out. You know, Psalm 23 says, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. You know, if, you're, if, if my sheep are laying down by 10 o'clock in the morning, I know they have plenty of grass. If my sheep are grazing all day, it's because the grass is short. But if they're lying down in green pastures, they're satisfied. 
That's just the way it is. They're satisfied. And Christ here, he says, you will go in and out. If you enter in by me, you will go in and out and you will find plenty provision. You will be satisfied and there's plenty more to come. If you would need it, I would give you yet more. You see. That's the contrast of the thief versus the good shepherd. He says, I have come that they may have life. What a glorious thing. Life. And you, you see, the life that the children of God have, the, the life that the sheep of God have, is an unending life. We don't appreciate that enough. Where we are simply know that we will never die. And I'm not speaking about our physical death. That is just ushering into the presence of the Lord. That to die is gain, you see. But it is having this settled once and for all that I have life and it is eternal in nature. It is everlasting life. It begins now. I can have it and it is mine through the Good Shepherd. I have come that they may have life. And how is it that we get to have life? It is because the very next verse says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd gives His what to the sheep? He gives His life to the sheep. The reason that we have life is because He laid His life down. You know, how many times in the old, under the old covenant, did how many millions of sheep died for their shepherds? Have you ever thought about that? Millions of them. Daily, thousands maybe. Were, were slaughtered to cover the sins of their masters. Here the, the, the master, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Truly, truly this is an amazing shepherd. That he would lay his life down so that these poor sheep could live. Just meditate on these three words. For the sheep. Twice here in this passage. First time is in verse 11. He gave his life for the sheep. In verse 15 he says it again. As the Father knows me, I am known by my own. I'm sorry. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the the sheep this is the trade his life for mine but we see the glory not in this text that i just read but in in verse 17 and verse 18 the glory is that he can give his life and then he can take it back (laughs) isn't that wonderful he laid his down but he had the power to take it again so he made a sacrifice for you, but he was of, it was of such a nature, it was of such a divine character that he had the power to take it back again. See, once we die, it's like water, as one commentary said, once we die, it's like water poured on dry ground. There's no recovery from that death. If you die physically unprepared for eternity... It's like water poured on dry ground. It soaks up. There's no recovery. But not so for Christ. He was able to take it back up again. But that is for the next time. But notice. In contrast to 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 the thief. That he has come to give us abundant life. And, and, And there is a. There's something here that I wanted to just throw in. Uh, the commentaries note that in verse 11, uh, verse 10, where it says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That word more has no reason for being there. According to the old, uh, the old writings to, to the manuscript. It is simply, I came that they may have it abundantly. Because... There's no such thing as an abundant life outside of Christ. 
There's no such thing. And so it's redundant to say more abundantly. It is simply saying, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it richly. That they might have it fully. That it might be overflowing. That it might not be a cup half full, but it is running over. My cup runneth over, you see. That's the kind of life that we have in the Good Shepherd. That following the Good Shepherd, He brings us to rich pastures and quiet streams. He gives. The reason it's so rich is because it's His life. It's His. It's His to give. You see. So these words, for the sheep, it's in our place, in my place, in your place. It's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That... Here it is, I'm, I am condemned. Here's a perfect sacrifice. He takes my place, I take his. Substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is that a substitute took my place and brought me into fellowship with a righteous and holy God. That is what it means for the sheep. He gave himself for the sheep. He gave his life for my sin. That I might live abundantly in him. The good shepherd. He is a good shepherd. Amen. Amen. Jesus is not a hired man. That is verses 12 and 13. But a hireling. And then it stops just there and he says he who is not the shepherd <laughs> you see it, it um, quantifies that who or what a hireling is a hireling is not a shepherd it says he who is not a shepherd the one who does not own the sheep you know it makes it clear that a hireling is a hired man and he's paid wages to simply watch sheep and that man does not have his he does not, he hasn't spent hours and many nights thinking about how can I cross this ram with this ewe and get this lineage started and get, and he's got all of this endeavor in this flock of sheep and the, the master hires this man, but this man has no care for them. He has no vested, he hasn't invested himself in it, you see. But when the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, now he's invested. His very life is in us. Of course he's invested. He's completely invested. He is not a hired man. The good shepherd owns the sheep. You see, we are not our own. Even as the glorious liberty of the children of God, we are not our own. He owns us. He has a right to us. And that's what it means when, he, when the shepherd comes to the door. He has authority to deal with his sheep. He has the authority to call them out because he owns them. And the idea here is in calling out the sheep from the Jewish uh, sheepfold, is the idea that he owned the sheep before he had called them out. It's an interesting concept, but Ephesians 1 and verse 4 says that chosen in him before they were born. Before they were in the Jewish sheepfold, you see. It, it, it's a Thessalonians chapter 2 again. It is God who chose us. You see, it is Acts 18 and verse 10 where the Lord came to Paul and says, don't be discouraged. I have, I'm with you. I have many people in this city. Now how were they His? How were they his? They were his by election. 
They were not his by some other doing. They were his by election. And, God, and he says to Paul, you stay and preach. Paul stayed and preached for a year and a half in Acts 18 and verse 10. Election does not mean that you don't need to hear the gospel. That is the means that election becomes clear. That is the means that, that it becomes evident that we are chosen. Your response to the gospel, you see, that's when election becomes evident. See, so they are his own. In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. How are they his own? Well, they are first his own by divine decree and then they are his own by the purchase of blood. In Acts 20, verse 28, it says, and this is a teaching to the Ephesian elders, where he says in Acts 20, verse 28, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. There's another, um, another reference to this illustration of the flock. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. How are we his? We are his by divine decree, and we're his by purchase of blood. Mm. The good shepherd. Verses 14 and 15, as we wind this up a bit. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. Know the, notice the intimate knowledge there. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. And you could read, as one commentary said, you could read it following just as the Father knows me. You see. That's so... Even so, I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. It's this intimate knowledge that the Father and the Son had in their relationship together. That is of the same kind and nature that exists now between the shepherd and his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, he says. And I am known by my own. What does it say in John 17 where he says... This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I want to read a little bit in John 17, in the latter part of John 17, verse 23. It says, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's almost beyond comprehension. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me. Before the foundation of the world, and how was it that, they had, that, that he loved us? Just as he loved him, you see. And he loved us before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Well, let's quickly look at verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. What does that mean? This is kind of the key, I think, to understanding this passage. That... There is a fold here that Jesus is saying. There is, there is another fold. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Not of the one in, chapter, in verse 1. Not of the Jewish fold. There are other sheep. 
which I have. He says, I have them. But they're not of this fold. And so that indicates that, that it's not necessarily speaking about the church. You know, I don't think we can understand the fold in, chapter, in verse 1 as the church. And that, so, so you see, this, this has implications here of understanding this passage. That there are, he has sheep wherever there is a gathering. Wherever there is a fold, wherever there is a shelter for sheep, he has sheep in there, you see. And so he says in verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, just as the, as the blind man did. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, that is none other than the Gentile than the fold of the Gentiles. That is what verse 16 means. It is the fold that you and I find ourselves in. Praise God that He had sheep in other folds. That is, the glory here is that I have sheep which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring... What does that mean? Them also I must bring. Think about that. I must bring them. Why does he, why is there a must? Why is there an imperative here? Why is there a necessity that he must bring them? Well, he must bring them if he were to fulfill his mission. He must bring them. And if he would not bring them, they would never come. I must bring them to fulfill his mission. And, and, and the fact, number two, we would never come otherwise. I must bring them. And it is the idea there in Ephesians 4 where there is one faith, one God, one baptism. And the Jews and the Gentiles are brought together in the glories of this one flock and one shepherd. Well, this good shepherd, I, I hope that if you have not experienced the goodness of this shepherd, that, that you would in some ways feel like you're missing out tremendously. If you don't, if you don't know this good shepherd, then you don't know what it's like to not be afraid to die. And if you don't know what it's like to not be afraid to die, then you don't know the glorious liberty that's in that. That you can literally live this life, and if you are toes up before nightfall, great. It is a good thing. We have, it is, a, it is it's a hard thing for those who are left behind, but for you, it's glory. Well, I think we've lost sight of this. We, 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 we've lost sight of the glory that is to come. Because we have His life. Because we have His life. Well, Come to the Good Shepherd. Come. He is so gentle, so kind, has so many great provisions for you, has everything that you need for the here and now and for all eternity. You'll be spending His riches. And then you can't spend them. It's like you can't, you can't spend. It's, it's, it's this thing about... Where will you spend eternity? Well, you won't. <laughs> you can't spend it. You see, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a conundrum. You'll be there and enjoying it, but you're not spending it. Because <laughs> it'll never run out. It's infinite. Infinite. And so, I invite you to the abundant life that the Good Shepherd has for you. Come to Him. Come to Him. I want to close with the benediction of Hebrews 
this glorious epistle of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, verse 20. I'll read it for you. Hebrews 13 and verse 20 says this way, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever And the church said, Amen. You're dismissed.